Welcome to CTO Think, a podcast about leadership, product development, and tech decisions between two recovering chief technology officers. Here are your hosts, Don Vandemark and Randy Burgess. Hey, CTO Think fans. Before we fire off this latest episode, I have a few notes. We recorded this episode a couple weeks back, and our guest, Griffin Caprio, didn't have a website for his new or a name for his new project he's working on. But we do have a link for you to check out his new startup called Dante32, which you can visit at www.dante32.com. Dante32 is a product aimed at building tools to help podcasters with distribution, analytics, and monetization, and it's aiming for a summer 2018 launch. In terms of learning more about today's topics, um, we do have a few resources that we have tacked on to the end of the episode that will be, so you'll hear those at the end of the show. We will put all of these details into show notes so you can follow up with everything you need to learn more about uh, our guest and what we're talking about. So without further ado, here's our episode with guest Griffin Caprio about learning culture, learning as a cultural component for your firm. Hey, Randy, uh, we have a guest this week. Would you like to introduce him? Yes, we do. We are welcoming Griffin Caprio. He is a CTO slash entrepreneur slash networker in the Chicago area that I have known for a number of years. And uh, let's see how I know him. He has been a CTO at Sparks Media. He was a CTO at Simple Relevance. Um, He was head of software engineering at Innova. And he's been part of the Chicago CTO Forum, which is a networking group we mentioned a couple of weeks back. He was the founder of that. He's actually kept that going strong. It's been a tremendous group for my personal growth in technology leadership. So I wanted to welcome Griffin to the show. Hey, everybody. Hey, Don. Hey, Randy. Um, big fan of the show. I've uh, been listening to you guys since you uh, since you first started and, and you know, Don, I'm, I'm familiar with Randy from the Chicago community, so it's really great to uh, to see what you guys are doing here. Happy to be here. Great. Yeah, well, thanks. So what are you working on right now? Just to bring up, what have you, you were at Anova before, you're now working on something new. Just tell us what you're up to. Yeah, so um, I'm kind of an entrepreneur at heart. I've started three companies in the past, and I have a ten- tendency to tick tock between starting a company and, and a full-time role. And so I left Anova after about three years in March and kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do and, and kind of resisted the urge to start another company for as long as I could. I, I traveled a little bit and uh, took off most of April. And then, you know, the, the pull of a company uh, and starting something new was too strong. And so uh, in the beginning of May, I decided to focus on an idea that uh, I've been working on for a little bit. Um, it's in the podcasting space. We're, we're basically working on tools to help uh, distribution, analytics, and monetization for podcasters, which, mm. you know, from what I gather, you know, talking to people like yourself, those are some, those are probably three of the biggest areas of, of need in yes. creating a podcast as well as, you know, sustaining it and, and turning it into a business. So uh, that's what I've been uh, working on since the beginning of May. And, uh, uh, we're going to have a couple of products uh, in development and, and you know, some some larger stuff uh, ready to announce coming up here in the next few months. Awesome. Well, in the future, when we when you have something that people can visit, we will post those in the show notes later on and probably mention it, you know, in on a future episode once you're able to show more to the world. So good luck with that. And. We definitely could use some of the help in those exact areas that you mentioned. Awesome. I appreciate um, it. For this week, uh, the subject that we wanted to tackle is something that I you had brought up, you were doing at Anova, and that is bringing in learning as a foundational cultural component to your team or company. And... I taught a class last year, a classroom or a boot camp, and you visited and did a great um, presentation for my students. But what we're talking about here is much different in that you're trying to bring learning and knowledge into an entity that has to get work done. 
at the same time. And it's not just sitting in a classroom all the time. So I guess the first question is, what does learning as a foundational cultural component mean to you? And then we can talk more about execution, roadblocks, um, ways to do it best, that kind of thing. Yeah, true. That's a good question. It's, um, you know, it's partly the kind of core culture that you build into a team. So at Anova, you know, we had about 150 engineers. Um, We worked, you know, with a team that large, there was a lot of, um, you know, numbers wise turnover. Um, You know, we average, you know, between about 10 and 15% a year, which is, you know, hovering about industry average. You know, the problem is, is that when you're a team that size, that's still 15 to 20 people a year um, that you're kind of having to, um, you know, recruit and replace and, and put on the team. And, and so there's always kind of like a lot of change and there's a lot of ebbing and flowing. And so, you know, one of the ways to kind of, um, you know, build in learning as a culture for me was always the fact that um, things aren't going to be stable. And so we'll need an environment that allows people to kind of jump in, uh, contribute without necessarily having a significant amount of experience under their belt, um, either years of experience in software engineering or years of experience in a particular code base or particular product. And so, you know, being in a, in a, in the state of kind of that constant ebb and flow and just kind of expecting it as opposed to you know, kind of putting your head down and really, really, really hoping that no one leaves your team. We kind of went, you yeah. know, I, I tend to go the other way, which is like, let's just assume, you know, everybody leaves the the, the office every night <laughs> and nobody comes back the next morning. And like, what do we have to do? And, and kind of build, uh, build your team according to that, which, you know, at the end of the day helps, uh, has, has pieces of like retention in it as well uh, and culture building. So. So then I guess when you approach it that way, what was a sentiment of, I, I don't know if it was only Innova that you did this at, was it, have you applied this type of approach to at other companies? Cause Innova is one of the bigger firms you've worked for based on what I remember. Um, did you try this at other companies as well? Yeah, definitely. So Innova is by far the biggest, uh, both team as well as company I, I, I've had the pleasure of working with. And, um, I've worked with teams as small as, you know, kind of two, you know, me and another developer working on a, on a project and, um, you know, probably into the 50, 60, 70 range, uh, prior to Innova. Um, and it's really kind of the same components. So, um, just at different scales and, and, and in different areas. And so, you know, for example, um, I was the CTO of Sparts Media and we went through a, 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 growth to scale phase where we went from kind of seed investment to series a and um you know we raised you know institutional capital and we had to grow and scale our team and so the question isn't um uh hey do you think we're going to have to teach stuff to people coming in the assumption is that (laughs) and so you know you have to build out a uh, um, a culture that kind of fosters and supports that and the ways that you do that differ with scale for example at anova I have, uh, I had a, a team dedicated to learning, onboarding, and training um, with, a, with a manager of software engineering and uh, several people uh, in terms of coordinators and engineers that w- uh, worked on the team to, to kind of support the overall software engineering team. Uh, most companies can't do that because of the size, because of the scale. Yeah. Um, and so the, the tools and tactics vary and differ but conceptually it's, it's very much kind of the same, the same underpinnings. So let's talk about tools and tactics. Um, what would you say are the most important, if you're trying to bring to achieve this at your company, what are the first things that a person, um, a leader should do to try to institute, like to begin this process? Cause you're not going to do it overnight. It's not something that happens instantly what do you think is at the beginning the most important thing for for someone to try to install yeah definitely not going to happen overnight (laughs) um the as with most things that have to do with people and culture um it all starts with really two things it starts with trust and psychological safety and so Mm -hmm. you know you without those two things you'll never have um, a healthy culture of questioning because you'll never have a healthy culture where failing is 
um, acceptable. And so without yeah. those two things, you'll never have a learning culture where people can kind of build upon their knowledge and grow and mature. And so it kind of all starts with, you know, do your people trust each other that they can fail, that they can ask questions, that they can, um, you know, appear ignorant about things or not know something mm -hmm. or even admit that. And then do those same people have the psychological safety that they're not going to be penalized or there's not going to be a downside for, um, those actions that I mentioned in the first part, you know, am I going to be, am I not going to get a raise next year because I, uh, tried this and failed or, you know, mm -hmm. is nobody going to want to work with me because, uh, I asked this question and people think I'm dumb. Right. So like, unless you have those two real underpinnings, everything else doesn't matter. Like you can, you can have the best tools, the best LMS, um, you know, the, the most amazing teachers, none of that other stuff matters. It's all about like the trust and the psychological safety. Well, do you, like, how did you achieve that? Like, what did you specifically do to get those two items kind of going? Because that to me is difficult. Like if, if you don't have full control or you're new to a company, those are two difficult things to achieve. Um, so what did you do necessarily for, coming into a culture that didn't have those. Yeah, at the beginning. absolutely. And, and it's, it's really hard because, you know, as a leader, you, you work at both ends of the spectrum where you have to immediately trust hundred percent your team. Uh, yeah. but then you also have to work to earn even a, uh, a small percentage point of trust with them. And so, you know, playing at both ends of the, of the spectrum, the, the first and most direct way to do that is to you yourself demonstrate the, uh, the qualities that you want to see um, uh, shown by the other people. So that yeah. means you ask a lot of questions. You say you don't know. You um, point to your failures as learning opportunities. Like it all kind of like starts with with your ability to um, to show that um, it's not a, a hierarchical thing. It's not a, a career ladder thing. It's not you get to a certain stage and your learning stops. It's a continuous process. Yeah. Um, some things that I've done at previous companies, just as an example is, you know, make my areas of improvement and learning very visible. And so, um, in the past, um, at Innova is I've done things like, um, publicize 360 reviews that I've had done about myself from mm -hmm. peers and, and my boss and, and the people that report to me and publish those to the team and say, these are the things I have to work on. These are the ways that I'm going to do it. And these are the ways that I'm asking you to kind of hold me accountable. Um, you know, yeah. other ways are, um, if you just, uh, if you point out and reward, um, people exhibiting the behavior that you're looking for in kind of like public ways, you know, if somebody asks a question or if, if you see somebody, uh, give a look on their face, like I don't quite understand what was just asked, you know, you can kind of depending on the situation, bring up like, Hey, does anybody have any questions or, or you, Randy, you look like you had a question or is there anything else that, that this makes sense to you? Right. Like mm -hmm. you can try and like engender that, that discussion. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's, it's very, very difficult. And it's even, it's even more difficult. The, the bigger your team gets and the more senior, the people that you're working with are. Yeah. Well, I, I know I started the conversation saying this is not like a classroom scenario, but what you're talking about was applicable to me in teaching because I used to do a lot of live coding in front of my students. And the feedback I got when I started doing more JavaScript, um, which was more complex, people were mentioning, I really like to see you mess up and then you don't make a big deal about it. You just kind of like, oh, I'm not a, you know, I'm not, I'm imperfect and you're going to be that way too. And my students responded to the errors being made and not this like canned, everything's perfect because I practiced this before I got here type of deal. And so I, I totally agree with you that it's on the leadership level. The leader, the person that starts, you set the tone for the team in that space of, what is really just, hey, you make mistakes, you correct them, you're not perfect, you don't know everything. And then there's that other side of, um, you know, 
it's okay to adjust things on the fly and to not know the answer to everything. And I constantly would tell my students that too. So I've seen that in a classroom setting. It doesn't really change when you get into the, the business setting, I would say. Yeah, I would say the one big difference, though, is um, when you get into the into the business side, um, both performance as well as people management come into play. And oh, yeah. <laughs> one of the one of the biggest ways that I've seen is is culture is is who gets rewarded. Right. Like there's yep. an expression. And so I think a lot of people have a tendency to focus on uh, rewarding the behaviors that they want to see exhibited but not necessarily addressing the behaviors that they don't want to see exhibited. And so, you know, if you've got, um, we've all worked with people like this where, where they're the, the brilliant jerk, right? Yeah. You've got the one developer on the team who, you know, wrote the original systems and um, uh, knows everything about the system, but nobody can work with them. It's gonna, it doesn't matter what you do with everyone else on the team as long as his, his or her existence is tolerated in that manner, there'll never be trust amongst the team. Like, because they, they won't, they'll hear you say this stuff is valuable and then they'll see it not exhibited in this other person. And they'll say, well, you know, Griffin's saying one thing, but he's allowing here, he's allowing this person to, to not do that stuff. So how can I believe what Griffin's saying? Yeah. Um, and I've, I've found that, you know, as a last resort, one of the things that, that, to build any sort of culture is you need to both reward and nurture what you're trying to do as well as um, address and possibly remove um, the people that don't fit the culture that, that you're looking for, which can be, you know, a delicate situation because in technology, especially we don't get a lot of help from a man, from the management standpoint. And we yeah. definitely don't get a lot of help on the, uh, uh, how do I address or how do I give negative feedback or how do I, um, you know, possibly transition somebody out of the company? It's, it's a, you know, hopefully a rarely done thing, but it's also a very, very, very important. Sure. And then when you're brand new to a company, more often than not, the brilliant jerk is in a spot where they're very, everyone's dependent on them for production and technology and stuff. And you can't just slash and burn when you walk in the door, you have to try your best to make everyone happy and that can be harder. So yeah, that's definitely a challenge. Um, Once you, let's say you have, you've been able to get a culture that rewards the good behaviors and does its best to suppress the bad behaviors. What is the next step? Where do you take the, the, the the knowledge, the learning from there, because now you've gone from, Hey, you have a culture that it's okay to ask questions, but it's also the answers aren't always within the team that you have. How do you start to build a culture that, and, or maybe bring in outsiders, that kind of thing. What's the next step would you say to having a, you know, learning as a big piece of a company, continuous learning, I would say. Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good question. I, I would say that it's one of two things and it, it kind of depends on like the size of, of the team that you're working with and, and the state of the culture. But I would say that the very first thing to do is try and identify what I call amplifiers. So people that, mm-hmm. um, you, you don't have to kind of win over <laughs> with, uh, your, your good ideas or your direction. They're, they're interested, they're excited, they're, they're here to kind of, um, uh, work with you and, and they, they want the learning culture too, or they want a particular, uh, you know, change to the culture. And those are going to be some of your allies that are going to allow your message to be amplified when you're not, uh, physically in the room, so to speak. Yeah. Um, the second piece though, too, is I would, um, I would really, um, get people to focus on things and, and to choose things that um, proportionally are the things that don't change or the things that are very core to your culture that you're trying to instill. And, and I'll give you an example of, of where learning cultures can kind of go wrong. A lot of people in, in technologies, when they talk about learning, uh, I was just having this conversation the other day, 
they refer almost exclusively to new technologies or new frameworks. Mm-hmm. And what that's going to do, if, if you choose to focus exclusively and solely on that type or that archetype of knowledge as your learning culture or your learning environment, is it's going to create a sense of churn and it's going to exhaust your yeah. people because there's always going to be a new framework to learn or there's always going to be a new you know, uh, data analysis tool or there'll always be a new technique to learn. And so yeah. your team is just going to get exhausted by the idea of like perpetual learning with no real progress being made that they can see. Um, mostly because, you know, you, you get to a certain spot and it's six months down the road and, you know, that, that person is like really comfortable in, in, uh, you know, um, Ember and all of a sudden here comes view and it's like, great. Yeah. Everything you did previously is, is worthless. Here comes view. And it's like, ah, that's just, you know, even though that's a trite, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying things, but it's a, it's an example where like <laughs> that is the type of learning culture where again, exclusively you don't want, there's a, there's a component of it, but. Um, you don't want to f- focus exclusively on that. You want to, to focus on making people uh, better people to start with, better uh, coworkers, and then better engineers. I think in that order. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think it's very easy to bring up JavaScript as a good example for that because it, that's what it's doing to the entire industry. I think the rapid growth, whether, you know, for for positive or negative reasons, it is the e- very easy area to have people latch on to the new stuff without realizing that whatever it's replacing wasn't mature either. And it's just the new buzzword. And so then you have people that are rising up in an organization for being smart simply because they know the brand new framework and not because they have actually mastered any of it in the first place. Um, well, it's, it's, it's information arbitrage, right? It's, yeah. you know, just because uh, I know something that you don't, um, I am somehow more valuable now. And then as soon as that knowledge becomes uh, widely known, my value goes down. And, and there's a lot yeah. of, of corporations that are built around politics that, you know, are exclusively that, right? Yep. So then... If you have been able to, I, I guess, what techniques did you, have you used at Innova or Sparks or any of the others for maybe not exemplifying the the brand new stuff and actually to focus on the exact tools being used at the company? How do you, how did you do navigate that? I guess what's easy for people to lean on as what's new is cool versus let's figure out how to build these things right. Um, how did you combat that? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take it a step further and, and kind of mold your question a little bit. Sure. I, I would say that what I, what I instead chose to do first and foremost is um, focus on things that um, don't really change over the, the long period of time. And, and an example is communication. Nobody ever, nobody ever you know, willingly looks back and says, I'm done learning how to be a good communicator. I, I, I figured it all out. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm good there. Um, and so you can, you can do things like, you know, at Anova, every single engineer that we hired got the book, um, you know, Crucial Conversations mm-hmm. um, as a welcome, as part of a welcome package. And there was a couple of other books in there. And it was really meant to kind of do a couple of things. I don't think we got kind of as far as I wanted to before I left. But it was really meant to, to signify and indicate, like, look, being a good communicator is an extremely big part of being on this team. Um, yeah. Brilliant people that cannot communicate have no place on this team. Um, and so, you know, bringing things like communication, bringing things like emotional intelligence and empathy and problem solving and organizational skills, those are the kind of things that almost all teams can use some improvement on. And, and some yeah. evolution on. And those are skills that exist inside your company, outside your company, in, in future jobs, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, typically I, I look at a company and, and I look at a team and I say, well, you know, you guys don't really need a ton of help on the, on the tech side. You know, you guys are all smart. Everybody's going home and, and hacking on their stuff uh, for a couple hours at night or has a few open source projects. Like yeah. you're getting that, those repetitions, but what are you not getting? 
right? Like what are the things, what are the holes that, that we can look at and, and how do we use that as an example to kind of um, uh, do the learning? Because if you just take um, what people do on their spare time and bring it into their office, then you're, all you're doing is like melding the, the, the work-life balance. And you're, you're saying, yeah. like, um, you know, here's how to use GitHub better. And most people don't want that, right? Like they don't, you know, want to hear that. Now, yeah. what's important to, to pull out though is that like not all teams want to become better communicators, right? Not all teams. <laughs> yes. So you you have to you have to take a stand as a as a leader and say, like anything, this is what we value, this is what we don't yeah. value. And then you need to uh, amplify what you value and and diminish what you don't value. And some of that would include, you know, the fact saying, like, okay, um, we're not good communicators right now. Let's all, we're going to get better at being, you know, at communication or we're going to get better at collaboration or team building or anything like that. And some people are going to roll their eyes and say how much it doesn't matter and, you know, hem and haw. But at the end of the day, yeah. you know, those are what I used to tell people during interviews. Uh, and I interviewed, you know, probably four or 500 people at, at Anova over three years. And, mm-hmm. you know, what I used to tell them was, look, I don't care how much Ruby, you know, I don't care how much uh, experience in, in financial services you have. Uh, we are primarily Ruby on Rails shop and financial services with a, with a little bit of go. I said, I care about your ability to learn and evolve and adapt because the, the tools yeah. that we use today are not necessarily the tools that we're going to use in a year or two years. And I want people and I want a team that's going to come with us through that journey and not... Um, I'm not going to kind of throw you overboard as soon as we move on to a new tool or new technology. And I think right there is, is a key learning for how do you, how do you translate this to very small companies or a startup? So you're, you're, you're founding a company and you're trying to bring people in Um, that, that certainly is the, uh, mindset I go in with is we're going to be doing a lot of churning uh, and a lot of learning. So I need somebody who can do those things. Your, your technical knowledge is slightly less important because I need you to be able to adapt to, uh, and pivot to what we have. Um, what would, what, what other things do you think are vital when it comes to starting anew? Yeah. And, and that's a great point, Don. And, and the reason that it's so valuable and, and one of the things that, that it tends to um, convey is a sense of investment in the other person. And what gets lost a lot of times when we're doing interviews for Java developers or Ruby developers or anything like that is, is when we focus just on the technology, we kind of the person kind of fades into the background. And so as a result, there's this um, kind of accepted culture of, uh, yeah, I'm going to be gone in two years anyway, because that's what people in technology do. They leave and, and they don't really care what they're working on. As soon as something new comes out, they're off to there. But, you know, underpinning all that is, is the fact that the, the people on both sides, um, you're transactional to me, right? You're nothing but a, an aggregation mm-hmm. of code. And, you know, to, to Don's point, you know, if you are coming to someone and say, look, I have a startup. Uh, what you're doing today is not going to be the same thing as what you're going to be doing next week. But if you're going to, if you're willing, I'll invest in you and you'll invest in us and, and a relationship forms that transcends, you know, Ruby and, and JavaScript and, and any possible technology challenge that you can possibly imagine. And so, you know, as with most things, um, for me, it, it starts really with the people and being able to kind of like make a connection with the people themselves and show them and convey to them that like, they are more than just today's code output or, you know. Yeah. Right. So, so we recently talked with uh, April Winsel from uh, compassionate coding and we, we talked a, li- a lot about EQ skills. So um, I, I certainly, I don't want to say they've never existed, but, there certainly seems to be, and, and, and this seems to have been the way I've been molding um, my hires as well. Um, there seems to be a shift over the last, I don't even know how many years, from technical skills to EQ skills. 
um, emotional quotient skills. So uh, ha, when do you think that shift started or has it just been a slow, um, a slow graduation to the technology is less important and, and just like any industry, we're getting back to, to the, to the people skills being bet more important than the, the technical ability. You know, I think it really started when um, a more diverse set of people um, came into the industry mm-hmm. that were previously being excluded from the industry. And so, okay. you know, people and, and collaboration communication skills, and, and I, I really resent when people call them soft skills. Like, I, um, <laughs> And so I always, you know, I, I hopefully and people can, can call me on this, like, you know, th- those are skills that were never not important. We just, we as engineers just kind of held other people in the company kind of hostage to our knowledge that we had kind yeah. of like, you know, uh, squirreled away. And so, you know, the fact that um, engineering teams and development teams in the past were kind of that old boys network that uh, were kind of the special people over to the side, the idea that those that that was accepted and now the world is changing is really like our point of view the rest of the the rest of the world looked at it and said well we tolerated you because we didn't know how to do what you could do yeah so now that more people are entering the industry and a more diverse background that know how to do what we're doing and there's different applications of that and and software engineering and computer science and and software development have become way more democratized in much much different avenues People are looking around and saying like, oh, um, yeah, I don't have to put up with this. Like I, yeah. I don't have to be, I don't have to put up with, with kind of the smug, the, the dismissive person. I can just go over here and find somebody else who doesn't, you know, kind of treat me like that. So on this side, because you're, you're definitely going down the road for my a question I've had. Um, I feel like in my experience in the industry, I now have kind of the the strength to get through this problem, but I, I don't know that everyone finds themselves able to. Where do you see the resistance coming when you try to introduce this to a company, whether it's a startup, whether it's a big firm, where do you initially see the resistance? Is it top down? The top executives don't think it's necessary. Is it from the bro grammar you know, culture that we've seen that you're talking about is going away to some extent. Where do you like, where do you see the resistance to this idea? And then how does someone overcome it if they aren't a CTO, if they're a leader, but they're not necessarily in charge just to say brilliant jerks out where, like, what does someone do in that case? So good question. Um, this actually just came up recently on a, on a panel I was, I was speaking on and, you know, my response is, is two things. One is resistance comes from both sides, but it comes for different reasons and in different ways. And so take take kind of the, the top executive level. Um, you know, the executives in any company care about results. And all things being equal, they want to minimize risk for yeah. increased results and, and reduce change because change brings risk, right? So... If you bring them, um, you know, a plan with no ability to execute on it or no demonstrable results within a, a specified time frame, if you just say like, hey, I'm going to make the team better, but it's going to take nine to, tw- nine to 18 months before we see results of it, just like anything, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, we don't, we don't have nine to 18 months to, to figure that out. Um, and so your, your job, I think, especially in the role that you mentioned is... How do I think um, and plan in the 9, 18, 24 month range, but execute every single day in small ways to kind of orientate ourselves towards that so that I can get a little bit of results, which will get me a little bit more flexible room from, you know, my boss, which will get me a little bit Mm -hmm. more results, which will kind of just iterate on top of each other. Um, And then at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I used to tell people, um, CEOs don't care what source control you use. Yeah. Like nobody cares. But if you tell them instead, and this was, this was, you know, when subversion was coming out and we were talking about migrating from CVS and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Hey, we need to just pay some license fees for this tool or, or whatever. Yeah. 
the CEO was like, well, none of this makes any sense to me. But if you instead told them like, look, we're, we're burning a developer day per week on uh, source control issues, that turns into X amount of dollars per year. We can solve that with a quarter f- uh, of that for this tool that they understand. So you have to kind of yeah. put it in, in terms that, that make them care from their incentive standpoint. Um, I think what we tend to do is we tend to dismiss their motivations as irrelevant yeah. or not as important mm-hmm. as my motivations. Um, from the from the bottom end, I think it's definitely the the programmer culture. Um, I know it's it's you know it's very trendy right now to kind of like talk about your diverse and inclusive and and kind of like culturally supportive team, but it's a little bit like um, terrible drivers. Everybody thinks it's <laughs> it's everyone else. Yeah. And at the end of the day, all teams, it doesn't matter how you know focused on this kind of stuff you are, all teams have little microaggressions and little things that happen every single day that exclude people or make people feel um, not normal or not part of the crowd or, or you know anything that you can that you can possibly imagine. And so, you know, you, you get the old adage from all the way at the one end of, yeah, we don't care about technology; we're just hiring nice people, um, all the way to um, well, we'll hire women for project management, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's stuff like that, that kind of like creeps into the, into the day to day. And, um, as with, as with the executive, uh, facing answers, it all comes down to iteration and it all comes down to kind of like that iterative movement and your job as, you know, call it a, a, a mid-level leader or a mid-level manager is how can you keep, uh, the team directionally focused when you're making decisions every single day to add up to that direction. Yeah. Right. It's almost like you're, you know, the end of the story or, you know, where you're trying to get, but you just have to give your team a little bit each day so that they don't get overwhelmed. Um, and you know, that goes to, to technological changes as well as changes. You don't have to come out and make a big splash and saying, and you know, in nine months, we're going to be completely diverse. You just kind of have to seep it in through iteration and repetition every single day. Well, like this is what we va- what we value, and the result of that is a more diverse team. When it comes to moving, like I agree with everything that you're have said, especially on the fact that the cultural change is coming from the more diversity coming into the industry. The other thing that we hear a lot about. Um, that I think is not discussed. It's discussed as a matter of how people code and get things done, but it's not discussed always as about learning is focus time to focus. Like I've been a part of organizations where people thought that if they needed to learn something, they would say in the meeting, yeah, yeah, I know how to do that. Then go home on their own time and actually knock out what they did just said they knew in the meeting because they d- it wasn't part of a culture that actually said you were able to allocate time for fi- finding out things, learning about things on company time. That's the time to be coding. Had, did you find that to be part of the culture, any of the cultures you were working in? And then how did you, like, what did your teams do to allow people to have time to learn on the job? Yeah, so absolutely. And, and I would say it probably goes even further into um, you're going to get you're going to get that feedback from people internal to your company, but external yeah. to your team. Right. Um, you know, why why does the engineering team um, go to conferences? Mm-hmm. Right. Why do they have book clubs? Why do they do this? Why do they do that? And, you know, instead of uh, what I usually kind of bring to people is in, in the case of kind of the the external viewpoint, I keep everything focused on kind of like production and not, um, raw output because I think that's, that's a never ending game, right? Like N and N plus one, N plus one Mm -hmm. is always going to be better. So like, if you tell somebody like, Hey, we got done, you know, 30 story points, um, this week, they may ask like, well, why not 35? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if you keep it focused instead on consistency, on, meeting deliverables and meeting deadlines and meeting dates and having a cadence where you're reducing their risk, then they're going to trust you more with, okay, I don't care. I don't know what they're doing, but my stuff's going on. And really at at the end of the day, like that's, that's all most of us care about 
is, do I trust you enough that you're going to reduce my risk of this not working out? Yep. Um, when it comes to, you know, people on a, on a team perspective, like how do I carve off time to learn? I think, um, you need to do your best to kind of meld those into continuous activities and not discrete functions. I would, I would highly doubt as a developer, you know, I've been an engineer for a long time, you know, um, um, you know, I know you guys have been engineers for a long time. I would highly doubt that, you know, 20 times a day, we don't look at something and say, huh, huh. Interesting, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it's kind of like um, co you're coding something, you you uh, make a change, and you're like, well, well, we'll recompile this and see if it works. All of that is learning, um, and I think it's I think it is a disservice to people when we keep activities that are focused on improvement as these like massive undertakings because it puts so much pressure on everyone involved um, that it it almost is destined to fail, mm -hmm. right? There's no possible way that, that you'll succeed. And, you know, th this goes for, I'm sure you guys have, have, have been around the block and seen it. This goes with like large technology improvements, right? Like what's, what's more likely to succeed a 24 month project or, you know, 12, two month yeah. projects. Sure. Right? And so it, as continuous as you can make it and as iterative as you can make it, and, and that'll end up being your job as the leader is to, is to stop and pause and hold the team and say, everybody gather around. Like, look, I want to talk about something that just happened, right? And if you carve out time and you don't make it kind of a special discrete activity, then this whole like aura of learning and the runs for it will kind of begin to melt away and it will just be a continuous thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't happen overnight and it definitely doesn't, you know, happen consistently with every single person. But um, part of the fun is trying to figure out like how people learn and how people are motivated from like a knowledge standpoint and some people like to go and, and read thousand page books yeah. and some people want to talk about something for 10 minutes and you supporting that team have to figure out like, okay, how do I, how do I create something and a culture that enables both of those people to continuously get what they need? Because if they don't, then they're just going to feel frustrated yeah. and they're going to feel stuck and they're going to feel um, like they don't have any, any challenge and then they don't have anywhere to go. So, after two years, I would, I mean, you had two years at Innova, almost three years at Innova. And yeah, roughly three. Where did you, where do you think that, that Innova was able to do this well? Because I think Innova represents a lot of companies. I, I feel like the size of the company is where a lot of start, like a lot of companies are these days that have been in the business for a number of years. And they have existing platforms. They're not just breaking new ground and disrupting something. It's like they've got technology, they've got a business, and they've got a team with a certain amount of, um, you know, attrition. Where do you? F how do you feel like you, Anova, progressed for the time span you were there? And where do you think they are still working on to like what they? Where does, where does a company need to go that's been down this path for that amount of time? You, you mean kind of from a learning, yeah. uh, learning culture yeah. standpoint? So, you know, I would say one of the things that I tried to do as the head of engineering there um, is kind of figure out the, the right level that I should play at and the right level that I should influence at and insert myself yeah. at. And one of the big things I focused on very early on is improving communication and improving transparency. Um, people, people and change get a, get a bad rap. Um, it's not change that freaks people out. It's the unknown and the surprise yeah. and the shock that, that freaks people out. And so, you know, I think one of the things, one of the ways that we were able to improve um, the culture, especially around learning at ANOVA was we significantly altered the type of communication, the frequency, the depth um, for everyone on the entire team. And even something simple like that. So for example, one of the things that I used to do is I would write a weekly newsletter to the entire software engineering team. And it got popular enough that it's, we started sending it to people outside software engineering. Mm -hmm. And we did a few things like, you know, I would write an opening paragraph, usually, usually some sort of poorly worded joke or, <laughs> uh, you know, some sort of pun. And then we would dive into things that the team is doing mm -hmm. and, and wins. 
And those wins, you know, got to the point where they were just being sent to me and I was aggregating them as opposed to kind of the one collecting them. Yeah. Um, but in the beginning, it was very much like, okay, I know this team is doing this and that's a huge accomplishment. We need to celebrate that. Like we need to tell everybody what they just did. Um, and we finally got to the point where, you know, the managers and the engineers and the other people on the team would send me things to say like, Hey, this person just did this, or this team just launched this. Cool. And then in the middle of, of those wins, I would put kind of funny links or, or interesting, um, you know, text or, or, um, videos or anything like that. And I would create kind of like this, this, um, uh, deliverable that you were kind of like interested in reading, uh, you know, when it hit your inbox, um, we also uh, did a lot more speaking and a lot more kind of addressing the entire team mm-hmm. um, and a lot more kind of FaceTime individually with all the individual teams. Um, I, I, we had a ton more stuff that I wanted to get done and, and there was a lot more things that I wanted to improve upon and, and, and make an impact. But I would say that transparency and, and communication were the two biggest areas that we really just crushed it. Like we, yeah. we really, to use a, to use a, an overplayed word, we really <laughs> improved significantly in, in those areas. And it was the, the effect was demonstrable. Um, yeah. the effect was demonstrable. Um, you know, I would say some, some of the areas that we really wanted to make further progress on were, um, we would have a onboarding and training program, uh, for the team that, you know, we, brought people through and it taught them the basics of like Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, Go, some database stuff, some yeah. basics around analytics, things like that. Um, I think we wanted to make a deeper and deeper stride into more um, ad hoc curriculum. Um, so when I left, everyone was going through kind of like the same kit. Uh, yeah. And if you, um, you know, if you knew a lot about JavaScript and not a lot about Go, but you still kind of went through the same same spiel. Um, I would have loved to have made more strides on making that a little bit more um, kind of like pick and choose your own adventure mm-hmm. and begin to include things outside of software engineering, like analytics, like financial modeling, like, um, you know, accounting, those kind of things that were truly valuable to the to the engineering team. Okay, that makes perfect sense. The I guess my last question, then I'll have a question on anything I'm leaving out. But the one thing I noticed and that was a challenge for me as a teacher in the classroom setting was, did you find resistance, unintended resistance from the introverted side of the teams, the people that didn't want to talk about what they were doing? And I know you talked about communication as part of your job, but sometimes it's not due to arrogance. It's due to the way people like what expends their energy and talking to other people, getting in front of a group of people can wear them out. How did you handle that part of the personalities and the different, the different makeup of that almost every team has? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point, Randy. It, not everybody communicates and likes to communicate in the same way, in the same vein that not everybody, everybody likes to be recognized in the same way. You know, I, I think it really comes down to getting to know your team and getting to know the individual motivations and the individual incentives that kind of um, push your team that they like and dislike um, down to an individual level. And so, you know, I definitely had people that all they wanted from a recognition standpoint is um, a handwritten note. Yeah. Like uh, just a thank you. Um, other people wanted to be brought up in front of, you know, the entire software engineering team and lauded for their, for their accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And if you switch those, uh, two people with those two recognition types, you, you'll have a mess on your hands. Mm -hmm. And so getting, getting as close to your team as you can to try and figure out, you know, what motivates you? How do you like to be recognized? How do you prefer feedback? You know, do you like it in person? Do you like it over email? You know, I, I managed people in the past that, when I had negative feedback, they wanted it in person immediately after it happened. Yeah. I had other people that when they, when I had negative feedback, they wanted it in email so that they could process it, think about it themselves. And then we can have a discussion in person, you know, a day or a day or two after they uh, had kind of like processed it. Yeah. But if you tried to do the same with either, again, if you tried to flip that, yeah. you know, you'd end up in, in kind of a very, um, problematic situation with the person that doesn't like to respond in real time 
and you'd end up in a very frustrating situation with the person that wanted the real-time feedback. Yep. Um, and so definitely don't force, you know, people or, or situations on uh, kind of like a one-size-fits-all manner. Yep, that makes perfect sense. And I think that when you try to apply and anybody tries to treat everyone the same, which is different than treating people equally, it's treating people the same, different personalities is not how it works. You have to know your everyone on your team and treat them equally but differently in the sense of how they respond to praise, stimuli, feedback, any of that. Um, yeah. I, I will I will say the uh, the one the the learning from my career that that really brought this forward um, as far as figuring out each person and and how how to how to manage was dur- during the time at IBM where I was managing offshore resources a lot and and I had some resources from India I had some resources from the Philippines. Um, and it was a matter we're, we're talking about managing people as individuals, which you must do. But then when you're when you're working with a group of people from a country, you have to manage them as individuals. You also have to understand their culture and and what what motivates them and what's important to them and how they react to certain things. So I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to phrase this properly to where I'm not saying you treat everyone from that culture the same. You have mm-hmm. to do that learning to figure out what those different things are. And then you, you break it down even further to the individual level. And that's where it became real apparent that, oh, I've got to manage each person based on them and not just what I think is best for Yeah, everyone. Absolutely. That's a great point on the, um, the, the context always matters. Um, one of the things that I've learned in my career is, um, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a 6'2", shaved head, kind of buzz, buzz cut, um, you know, dark haired, kind of tattooed guy. Uh, I can be talking to people and give off a very uh, aggressive or animated, and I'm Italian too, so I like move my hands and everything. Um, I could give off a very aggressive and animated um, body language conveyance to the person that I'm talking to that may not be nearly as urgent or serious or angry as it may be perceived. And so, you know, working with people from different cultures um, that are, you know, maybe more demure or maybe more excited or more animated, like understanding like how you're perceived in any light in any context is really, really important. And it's a good way, you know, when I talked about communication earlier, it's verbal as well as nonverbal. Yeah. So is there, I mean, we've, we've, this is some great lessons for people to take away. Um, I think this is a very important track for people in our business and our line of work that are wanting to be a leader or, or are a leader and trying to figure out what it takes to run a stable, more, you know, um, like a stronger organization with a diverse type of people put together working for on what is usually technology that and in some ways has no soul. But I guess, is there anything that we haven't brought up that you're like, this is still an important piece that we haven't talked about yet? Um, I can't think of anything, but I just want to know if there's a last parting um, thing that you have to say about this subject. Yeah. So the only thing that I'd say is, and if, if your audience and, and people listening take away one thing, it's, it's like most things in our lives, um, starting small and building a consistency and a habit yep. will pay off in dividends. And so if you're, if you're at home or, or you're at, at your work uh, and you're trying to think of like, how am I going to start? Like, how am I going to do this? It, it's this insurmountable feat in front of you. And you're like, well, how am I going to eat the elephant? And the old joke is one bite at a time. Mm-hmm. That's really what changing behavior and changing psychology is, is because, you know, a learning culture, just like any other kind of cultural transformations, whether it's agile or lean or, or process or technology or development, whatever it is. 
at the end of the day, you're, you're, cha- you're asking people to change their behavior. And that does not happen overnight, and nor does it happen without um, against their will. And so starting small, building people, uh, building people up and getting their support and getting um, their kind of buy-in, even if it means, you know, you don't make the progress that you want to make, right? You know, everyone has an end state, but it's more about the journey than, than kind of the end state. And that's more important for, for yep. actually making change. Awesome. So if in the future, how do people, how do people find you? If like, in the sense of you have been an advisor for a number of companies, um, you're working, like you said, you're working on your own project right now. Um, how do people find you? if they have questions or want to follow up on what you're doing? Yeah, so I would say uh, the easiest is um, either Twitter or email. Um, I respond to pretty much everything that I get uh, in my inbox or any tweets or DMs that I get on Twitter. Um, as you mentioned, I'm kind of heads down right now on a, on a new venture, but um, I, give, I give all the emails that I've received a thoughtful response. Yeah. Um, mostly because most people don't, um, don't email. And so the ones that do, I, I really want to kind of, you know, respond and, and offer to help. Um, I'm always available, especially if you're in Chicago, um, to meet up for coffee sometime or grab lunch. If you just want to talk about, you know, any of the things that we talked about or career or anything like that, I, I, I make it a point to really give back from a community standpoint because others make it a point to give to me. And so, you know, I really want to kind of like pay it forward and, and allow that kind of like continual learning to, to happen because frankly, I want to keep my good karma, uh, coming my way too. So. <laughs> well, this has been a great episode. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your insight. Um, you know, when Don and I talk about why we do the podcast, it's this type of show, um, that really gets down to what is it, what is going to make this industry better? What is it? what's going to make better managers and leaders. So again, thank you for coming on because this is exactly the message we want to send out to people. Yeah, absolutely. This was great. I, I appreciate you having me. And um, for sure, um, you know, if, if you want, we can, we can put some, some links to some books or some resources or some Ted talks that, you know, kind of reinforce yeah. or, or expand on the messages and, and the things that we've been talking about. But it's always great talking about this kind of stuff and, and the work, like I said, at the beginning of the show, the work that you two are doing to, you know, kind of spread the word and spread the message, I think is incredibly valuable. And I'm really appreciative. Awesome. Well, also let us know about the new venture when it gets out and we will be sure to tell people how, where to go once you are ready to show it. Absolutely. I, I would appreciate that. That'd be uh yeah, and, and hope, hopefully we'll we'll start using it ourselves. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we will call it a day. We'll but... tell people how well it works. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So we will talk next week. Thanks, Griffin. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Griffin. As promised, here are a few resources you can check out that Griffin recommends for folks wanting to learn more about learning as a cultural component of your company. We'll also add these links to the show notes so you can learn more about what we consider a pretty important topic. First, there's a TED Talk with Breen Brown about vulnerability and empathy. Second, there's two episodes of the Reboot podcast, one entitled The Space Between Stimulus and Response with Nicole Gleros and Jerry Colonna. And then there's a second episode of the Reboot podcast entitled, When Did You Start to Listen to Your Heart? with Brad Feld and Jerry Colonna. There are two books, a book called Crucial Conversation Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High by Carrie Patterson and multiple other authors, and a book called The Art of Possibility, Transforming Professional and Personal Life by Rosamond and Ben Zander. Again, all of these links will be in the show notes. These are books and resources that Uh, Griffin found really useful for himself when he was learning more about everything we talked about today. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the CTO Think podcast. Show notes and previous episodes can be found on our website at ctothink.com. Reviews on Apple iTunes are always appreciated and help promote the show. Patreon contributions help us to produce episode transcripts, which allow people that are deaf or hard of hearing to access the show. If you have feedback, ideas, or want to be a guest, 
please email us at hello at ctothink.com. Show music is Dumpster Dive by Mark Wallach, licensed by premiumbeat.com. Voiceover work by meganvoices.com. You'll hear from us next week. Thank you.